take some time this morning from Proverbs and to share with you just kind of a big overview of what does the family look like, what does it look like to, to do family wisely from the book of Proverbs. Uh, we could build a whole series um, out of Proverbs on the family. We're doing it in one Sunday. So um, I've, I've streamlined the content here for you. And uh, we're going to just kind of be doing overview big pieces. We're not going to be able to cover everything. There's going to be things that you probably wished I would have went into more detail on that I'm not going to be able to. Um, that's okay. We're, we're kind of doing a flyover um, of Proverbs and what it, how it addresses the family and, some, and just kind of some four key pieces to what it looks like to navigate family life with wisdom. We know from the Bible that family is God's idea. Uh, we, anytime we deal with a, a subject like this, and we've done this a few times in Proverbs, it's good to sometimes go back and remind ourselves constantly of where we come from, right? We are created by God, and the first family uh, was, was God's idea, right? He created Adam. He said it's not good that he, he be alone. He created Eve, and he told them to what? Be fruitful and multiply, and he had them stewarding the earth. And so the first family right there with Adam and Eve told to go, be fruitful, multiply, cover the earth, steward the earth. And we know that that first family sinned against God. Adam and Eve both sinned. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam, he dug his heels in and he just, you know, shook his fist at God. And they, and they rebelled against God and decided they knew better than God. And they sinned against God. And ever since then, the whole earth has dealt with the consequences of that very first sin. Sometimes people say, how in the world could one sin cause so much trouble throughout time? And it's because of who the sin was against. All right? So you have an infinite, holy, just, loving, powerful God, all-powerful God. One sin against him was enough to rupture the entire everything that we think about uh, in our world spiritually. And so the world's dealing with the impact of that to this day. And we all sin. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. And that first family realized the consequence of their sin pretty quickly when their first child, Cain, murdered their second child, Abel. And so the first family uh, to walk the earth was very, uh, how do I put this, soap opera-esque, okay? And so it was a little days of our lives-ish going on there in the early days. And this Cain had killed Abel. And I mean, just all kinds of stuff going on. And then another child comes, right? Seth. Um, not Seth who led us in worship this morning, but he's not that old, right? Um, but Seth comes along and he kind of represents for us the line of the promise because God had given a promise to Eve uh, and to Adam, but to Eve that he said there was going to come one, Genesis 3.15, one who would undo the work of the serpent, who would crush the head of the serpent. A redeemer was coming. And here we are. Thousands of years later, however many years later, generations later, as we stand here today, Jesus has come. We know and believe Him to be the Son of God, the offspring of Eve, seed of Abraham, the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh. And we know and believe that if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus who has come and died for our sins and risen again, right, that you are born again and you begin to walk in victory and to align yourself with God's purpose and God's design. And so Jesus, we know, saves us from the penalty of sin. We talk about that often. That's the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, hell. He saves us from the penalty of God, sin. Uh, right now, he's saving you. Uh, if you're a believer, you're increasingly being saved from the power of sin as you learn to walk in victory in your life and as God forms you and molds you and makes you more like Jesus. And one day, you will be ultimately forever saved from the very presence of sin. But right now... While you're 
don't have to worry about the penalty of sin. If you're a believer today, you still are wrestling with that power in your life, even though you've been set free. You, you mess up, you fail, our families do. But you swim within the presence of sin every day. We live in a, a sinful, fallen world. And in the midst of that, with all that going on, knowing that our families are not perfect, that there's no such thing as a perfect family, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, there's no such thing as the perfect child or the perfect parent or the perfect mom or perfect dad or the perfect brother or perfect sister, how do you do family-wise? How do we recover and pursue God's design for family with so much brokenness in our world? And Proverbs has some practical help for us in how we pursue family and doing family wisely. So we're going to read several Proverbs today. I want to start in Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. This is what he says. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So in the very first chapter of the book, the family unit is introduced right there in verses 8 and 9. And we see here the family kind of being seen as this school for wisdom. A school for godly training. Where parents are imparting wisdom to the child so they can learn to walk in wisdom. And remember, as we read some of these verses this morning, it's going to be important to remember this. And as we deal with the topic of sexual immorality and adultery in a couple of weeks, it's going to be important to remember this. Proverbs is written from the perspective of a father to a son. So some people read Proverbs and they kind of go, wow, I mean, they, you know, it warns you about the certain women and things like that, but it's not warning you about the men. And it's, it's the father telling the son to do this. Or what about the daughter? Well, it's a father talking to a son. If he was talking to his daughter, he would say things a little bit differently, right? And so you have to, when you read that, you always have to know the context of what you're reading. And so when we read some of these verses today, it's going to be important for the ladies in the audience to, to put this in your context and understand, okay, this still applies to me. It's just that I'm where he's dealing with, you know, talking about the blessing of a wife here. I need to think about it in terms of the blessing of a husband and, and vice versa and all those sort of things. And so as we walk through that, we need to keep that perspective in mind. And what we see from the outset here in Proverbs 1 is that we see a child, right, who's being told to listen to and obey his parents. We, a child who is probably a little older here as he's getting ready to launch off maybe into adulthood. We see the father, we see the mother, and they are tasked with instructing and teaching and the, the child instructed with listening and hearing and valuing. And then there's the unspoken relationship there between the father and mother, which means you've got a husband and a wife. And Proverbs deals with that relationship as well. And then Proverbs even deals, to some degree, with siblings. And as you go through the book, you begin to learn how the family unit looks and how it should function and what wisdom looks like in each of these relationships. And so I want to give you four keys to walking and doing family with wisdom. Number one, first thing I want you to see from Proverbs is we need to learn to steward our marriages well. That's the first thing, stewarding our marriage as well. Proverbs presents marriage as a very serious, precious treasure that needs to be stewarded with wisdom and needs to be valued, treasured, and taken very seriously. Because your spouse, as we're going to see here in just a moment, can either be a blessing to you or can bring much pain into your life. Your, your marriage can be this great thing in your life or it can be a, a point of pain in your life. And Proverbs is very honest about that. But the first thing we need to see that Proverbs kind of points out to us kind of subtly, is that marriage is a covenant before God. And it's obviously a blessing from God. Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2, verses 16 and 17. Proverbs 2, verses 16 and 17. Here he's warning his son about an adulterous woman. 
And he says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. He's saying, listen to my wisdom so you'll be delivered from that path. In verse 17 he says, here's how he describes her. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So he war- part of what, when you read Proverbs, this particular person, this adulterous person is addressed multiple times, especially in 5, 6, and 7. And they're presented as a very foolish person that's walking a very foolish path that really doesn't know what they're getting into. And here he describes this person as someone who forgets the companion of their youth and forgets the covenant of their God. So in other words, like the rest of the Bible, Proverbs sees marriage as a covenant that is made between two people before God. And this particular person just casts that off. And here he's charging us that our spouse is someone to be faithful to and not to forsake. That we didn't make a, just make a promise to our spouse, we made a promise before God and to God. That we'll answer to more than our spouse for how we steward our marriage. You and I will answer to God for how we steward our marriage. Proverbs 18.22 points out the blessing that can be from God that is marriage. Listen to what it says. Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now that doesn't mean if you're a lady and you find a husband that you didn't find a good thing and obtain favor from the Lord. Remember, it's a, a dad talking to his son. He's saying, listen, marriage can be a, a really, really good thing. Uh, It it can be a a sign of just God's favor on your life. A a tremendous blessing from God because God is deeply involved in marriage. God cares about who you marry. God cares about how you do marriage. God cares about obviously how you do parenting and all those other things we're going to get to. But God's deeply involved in the marriage relationship. And if you have a godly spouse of all things, that is a gift from God. If you have a spouse who loves Jesus and wants to walk in wisdom and values the Word of God and wants you to build your life and your family upon that, you ought to thank God every day for that. That is a precious gift to be stewarded. You have obtained favor from the Lord. And it's so about so much more than just about you and your happiness. God is involved in your marriage. It's about God and His glory. As the New Testament tells us, it is to point up people to the relationship between Jesus and His church. That is a, a precious gift to be stewarded. But it's not just a covenant before God and a blessing from God. It's a, it's a powerful relationship. Proverbs 12.4. Proverbs 12.4. This shows us the paradox of marriage. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Now he describes the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. But Proverbs 12.4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Now remember, he's talking to his son. In the same way, an excellent husband could be the crown of a wife and he can be rottenness in her bones. And it's that, it's that paradox. It can, man, he say, this is what he's saying. And you've heard this said before. When it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's bad. That's exactly what he's telling his son here. He says, he's saying this relationship can make you or break you. It, it can be viewed as a tremendous blessing and, be a, and can be a, a, man, a, a, just an incredible, wonderful thing in your life or, man, it can be painful. It can be like rottenness in the bones. Proverbs 19, Proverbs 19, verses 13 and 14. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. There's that paradox again, right? The quarreling wife or the prudent wife? The one that stirs up trouble, who constantly wants to fight and argue and and just get into it with people, right? Or the prudent, the wise wife, who he describes later in Proverbs, it's described later for us in Proverbs 31. These Proverbs are making that point that, hey, it can be really good or it can be really bad. But, and other than following Jesus, 
other than making the decision to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ and to follow Him and to build your life on Him, there is no other decision more important in your life that you will make and that will determine more the direction of your life and things that will happen in your life. It can be the second greatest blessing in your life. Or it can bring pain and misery and rottenness in your life. And sometimes maybe it seems maybe it'll seem like all those things are mingled together. <laughs> right? Maybe, you, maybe you'll have a season where it'll seem like an incredible blessing and then a season later that won't. That's the, we're living in a fallen, difficult world to navigate that we have to navigate with wisdom. But if you're single today, right? We've got a few single folks with us here today. If you don't have a spouse, right? Your spouse, according to Proverbs, can be like a crown or like rottenness in your bones. They can stir up trouble and perpet- like a perpetual dripping of rain in your life. Or they can be a gift from God. And in fact, a prudent wife or a prudent husband, I would say, is a gift from God. And if you want a spouse that's a blessing and a crown, they need to be pursued God's way, not the world's ways. We, we shouldn't do things the world's ways and expect God's blessing, right? You don't go looking for God's gifts, right, in the, the world's storehouse, so to speak. If you want a godly spouse who's going to make a great husband or a a great wife then, that's going to love Jesus that you can build a life together with of honoring the Lord. Then do things God's way. Be that kind of person. Don't assume you're going to find that person in the places that you wouldn't normally expect that person to even be. Begin stewarding your marriage before you ever meet your spouse. Your stewardship of marriage begins now. It's already begun. It's already begun. You read Proverbs 31, it says she does no harm to her husband all the days of her life. You can start now stewarding your marriage, praying for your spouse, guarding your purity. All those things start now. Seeking the Lord. Marriage is God's gift and especially, listen, this morning, if you have a prudent spouse, a prudent wife, or ladies, a prudent husband, if you have a spouse that pursues wisdom instead of quarreling and folly, What a blessing. I love this quote from Ray Ortland. He said, Marriage is a remnant of Eden, and God is calling us to steward it. Love that picture of God conducting the first marriage ceremony. God's institution of marriage before the fall in Eden. And here we are all these years later with the fall and all the mess we see around us, and God calling Christians to steward marriage wisely. And we cannot be good parents, or the best parents we could be, if we simply phone it in on the spouse. The most important thing your children and my children need is to see a dad that loves his wife or mom that loves her husband. Like Christ loves the church. Mom respects dad as the church is Ephesians 5, right? That's the most important thing. You, You can give, and I can give our kids the best education or clothes or toys or home or opportunities, but the greatest gift we give our children is a healthy marriage. And other than Jesus, that is the first relationship God calls us to steward. And it takes two. One day, those kids, your kids, my kids, are going to leave. And they're going to have their own home. And you don't want to be, and I don't want to be, left with a stranger. Marriage comes first. Your spouse comes first. They come first, after Jesus. So steward your marriage wisely. But number two, guide your children diligently. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9 that we read at the beginning, 
he talks here about this role here. He says, my son, your father's instruction, you need, you, need to, you need to listen to it. You need to hear it. You don't need to forsake your mother's teaching. Don't do that. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Listen to your father's instruction. For they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So in other words, there should be some instructing and some teaching that is going on in the home, right? And it should be of the type that it could be called graceful garlands and pendants for the neck. It should be the type that you can wear outside, right? This should be the type of thing that it, it, it's, it's adorning and helpful in life and a blessing. It's a high call of parenting. And if you are a parent this morning, God has entrusted one of His image bearers to you to care for and guide. You've been charged with guiding through instruction and teaching and discipline a child from folly to wisdom. And guiding starts with our example. Starts with our example. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Think about that. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. There is an impact that your example makes when you choose to walk in your integrity, when you choose to walk in righteousness, when you choose to honor God with your life and be a person of integrity before God and before others. Blessed are your children after Him. Why? Because they've seen your example. You've, you've trod out a path for them. And we need to walk in our integrity before God and others and leave that well-worn path for our children. So my children are grown and they're moved out. Well, this is one thing you can, can still do. You say, well, I've got grandkids or great-grandkids. This is the path you're still to be walking. The example is still being set. Show them how to be a grandparent. Show them how to age well. Show them how to handle life after work. All those things are roles that we play in our example. And guiding them means training and instructing them in that right path. Listen to Proverbs 22.6. Now you know this one. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, that's a verse that confuses people sometimes. Because they say, well, I feel like I did that. My child has wandered from God. I feel like I've got a prodigal out there. Well, this doesn't mean that there is some foolproof way to make sure your child is 100% going to be a Christian and walk with God. Only God can change your child's heart. No amount of good parenting will convert your child's heart. You can be the world's best parent and you still will not be able to convert your child's heart and still will not be able to change their life. We've got a role to play, but it's not God's role. And so, remember, it's a proverb. It's a general statement about general truth. This is a, it's, he's saying it's an encouragement to remind us that training and instruction in the lives of our children will stay with them. And what's learned at five can still be important at 50 and can still be impacting their life. It's a general rule about when we train them in the right way. It's a general rule. We will see them walking in that even late in life. And many times you will see them wander and come back. But it's not to be taking as some foolproof way to have perfect children or the world's godliest children. But it's the parents. Not the school system. Not the coach. That are responsible and will give an account to God for training and instructing children. It's you and me. We'll stand before the Lord Jesus one day and we'll give an account for how we taught and instructed them. Orange County Board of Education is not going to do that. Individuals will. But that, we don't get to, to cast that off on somebody else. We don't get to point our fingers at the church or the Sunday school teacher or the youth pastor or the children's director or, any of those, or the pastor or anybody else. The parents. 
We'll stand before God and give an account. It's our role. We're the ones called to train up the child in the way he should go. It's attributed to President Woodrow Wilson this, that when he was president of Princeton, he had a group of parents visit him at Princeton. And this is the quote he said to them. I love this quote. He says, I get many letters from you parents about your children. And these are college students now, obviously. You want to know why people up here in Princeton can't make more out of them and do more for them. Let me tell you the reason we can't. It may shock you just a little, but I'm not trying to be rude. The reason is that they are your sons, reared in your homes, blood of your blood, bone of your bone. And they have absorbed the ideals of your homes. You have formed and fashioned them. They are your sons. In those malleable, multiple years of their lives, you have forever left your imprint upon them. A lot of truth there. This means we have to be proactive. Proactive in the instructing and training of our children. Deuteronomy 6 makes that very clear that from the all the way all the way back, right? When God gave the law to Israel, he wanted them molding the next generation, sharing the word of God with them so that they would in hope that they would grow up to love God, love others, have his word written on their heart, pass it on to their children, and it started in the home. The home but training up a child involves effort and hard work and focus. It's not for lazy people. It's not for faint-hearted people. If we're lazy or faint-hearted, our children will run all over us. Listen, we can't be passive in parenting because they're not passive in whatever it is they do. Right? <laughs> Children-y. And all that comes with that. They're not, they're not passive about it, right? They don't, they don't have to be taught the wrong way to do things or, or to walk in folly. As we're going to see here in just a moment, that's default mode. Right? It's default mode. So guiding our children, we have to purposely instruct, teach, put God's Word in front of them, share God's Word with them, teach them. Yes, God's Word, life lessons, all those things, but especially the truth of God. And guiding involves disciplining them. And Proverbs says a lot about that, some of which is not super popular in our culture today, but we're going to read it anyway. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. It's on the screen for you. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now Hebrews 12 quotes this passage and the New Testament points this out that God disciplines us because he loves us. And Proverbs shows us here that disciplining your child correctly is a sign of delight in them. This idea of raising free-range children who kind of govern themselves, just roll them out there. I mean, I, re I read a story the other day about a, about a lady, like a, I think she's a child psychologist or something like that. Her kid was like six, seven, eight, I can't remember, like a child in New York City. She gave him a $20 bill and told him to get from point A to point B somewhere else in the city. Let's just see what happens, right? That was, that was her idea of, I mean, that's kind of what our culture would say today. It's kind of hands-off, right? It's kind of an overreaction to what they call the, the helicopter mom. But the Bible tells us that God is one who disciplines His children. And it uses the illustration of discipline, of how a loving father disciplines a son, to give you an idea of what, how God would discipline you. Usually, if we can't see the need or the reason to discipline children, we really don't understand God very well. It usually says something about what we think about the very nature of God and who He is. Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give the light to your heart. Here's my translation of that. Discipline your son so you don't go crazy. 
That's what it's saying. I mean, other translations say it'll bring peace to your heart and relieve you of anxiety, right? He will give you delight to your heart and give you, give you rest. In other words, it's, it's good for them, but it's good for you too. It gives you a little peace of mind to know that you, you're purposely doing the things that need to be done. You're doing what you can do to train them in God's ways, teach them right for wrong. Proverbs 22.15. Proverbs 22.15. Folly or foolishness. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. It's default mode. Folly is bound up in the child's heart. Why? Because we're sinners by nature. Not just by choice, but nature and choice. Proverbs 13.24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. There's that word again. Discipline. Discipline. So our children's mode... Default mode is folly, and they must be guided towards wisdom, and that means instructing them and training them, but it also means disciplining them so that they learn consequences and the pain that comes with poor choices. Notice discipline done correctly is an act of love. It's not seen as cruel. It's seen as, as loving. If it's cruel, it's not biblical discipline. And sometimes there are caricatures, and discipline has been done poorly by people. People have bad experiences with discipline done poorly, and we overreact sometimes. You know, there are multiple ways to discipline a child. I read an article this week by Andrew Nacelli, who noted in his article the stages of biblical discipline. He talks about, number one, the stage of teaching, and then two, the stage of warning, and then the stage of enforcing, right? So it's kind of like, hey, you, we're getting out of the car right here. We're going we're gonna to go across, we're going to cross this parking lot, and I need you to hold my hand because it's dangerous out here, and there's cars going fast, so you need to hold my hand, Right? And then the warning is when you start the cross and you feel the kid tugging the arm to get away and you squeeze the handle and they say, no, you have to stay right here with me. Remember what I told you? That's the warning. And then enforcing comes if they don't obey and you have to decide what the consequences are for the fact they didn't obey. It's those three stages. And he points out the importance of spending much of our time on the first two stages in teaching and warning. Because the goal is to have to enforce less and less. But I thought he had an... Good observation here. The younger the child is, the quicker you tend to move through the three stages and need to as they're learning. One biblical concept of discipline, enforcing in other words, that is frowned upon our society today that you can't really ignore and read the Proverbs we've read is this idea of physical discipline or spanking. I don't have time to go into great detail about it, but let me point out a few things. People think it's old-fashioned. Some have labeled it abusive. We need to understand what the Bible says about it. And the rod of discipline in these verses, what does that mean? Well, it is talking about physical discipline. You can play all the kind of Hebrew gymnastics you want to do and try to make it that's about Psalm 23 and the, the shepherd's staff and all these sort of things. And it, it, this isn't about shepherding, it's about parenting. It's a rod of discipline. And the Bible not only condones but encourages spanking when needed from a parent. But let's be clear. The Bible in no way encourages physical or verbal abuse, nor does it say it needs to be the only tool in the toolbox. But it should be a tool, according to Proverbs, should be on the table, and it should never be done in anger or harshness. That's not at all the, the picture we see. That's sinful. It's to be done in love and warmth. It should be done for a child's good, not for getting on your nerves. That's not a reason to spank a child. Physical discipline is something that must be stewarded with love and wisdom, not with anger and harshness. And sometimes it gets looped together with pushing and shoving and slapping and screaming and yelling and verbally abusing and all these other different things. And it all just kind of gets lumped in. It's like that's the same as a controlled, loving spank to the rear end to a child that may need it in that moment. It's not the same thing. 
Here's the big thing, though. Here's the deal. Here's the big point about parenting in Proverbs. Guiding your children with your example and training them and disciplining them. The target is what's most important. What are you aiming for? It's not simply about behavior modification. And Proverbs tells us that. So you can do all the right things for the wrong reasons, and you can shoot straight and aim at the wrong target. Guiding them is about their heart. Proverbs 23, 15 and 16. Proverbs 23, 15 and 16 says, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. What, when your heart is wise, what's going to thrill this father's soul? Not just because he, he did the right things and went through the right steps, but he has a wise heart. A heart that fears God. A heart that walks in God's commands. A, God who, a, a heart that, that wants to follow God's design for life from His Word. A, a wise heart. That's the goal. Remember, the model disciplinarian is God Himself. Proverbs 3, we read it. And He disciplines us like a loving Father. And His motive is love. And what is God most concerned about in the Bible? Your heart. Your heart. God doesn't discipline you in hopes that you simply will conform to a behavior that appeals outwardly righteous. He disciplines you and me and shapes the shape in the hopes of shaping and molding our heart. Now, we can't change our children's heart. We're not God. But our goal is that God would use our instruction, our discipline, and our teaching in the process as He begins to shape and mold their heart. And remember, next time you're upset at your child's behavior, and you will be. For me, that'll happen about 3 o'clock today. But the next time that happens, remember, your target is their heart, not simply their behavior. And you can correct the behavior and lose their heart. And that's a tragedy. One of the things I try to be real strict on with Cannon, you've got some things in your house that you're more strict on. Other One thing is how he treats his sister. He's a boy, so he can tend to get rough, and he likes to wrestle and fight and do all those sort of things that little boys like to do. But I want him to learn at an early age that hitting his sister or speaking ugly to his sister or his mom, for that matter, will not be tolerated. Now, why is that? Is that just because I don't want him to, to hit his sister and don't want him to speak ugly to his sister? That I don't want them to be doing that at like 15 and 16? And it's because I want him to have a heart that treasures women and not one that objectifies women. I want him to have a heart that treasures and treats his wife and daughters one day as precious. And I also want him to, to treat in the right way, I want him to respect genders appropriately and to understand his sister's not a boy. And that when his little brother comes along and they want to roll around on the floor and give each other noogies, that's okay, but there's going to be a different way they're going to treat his sister as they, as they grow up. Because I want him to view women the right way. And that's, what's that about? That's about his heart. It's about his heart. There's behavior involved, but it's about his heart. So we aim for, we're guiding, their, we're trying to, we're, the goal is the heart. Number three. Respect your parents. Proverbs 23, 22 through 25 says, Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. And let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. In other words, there's not just a mandate on the parents, there's a mandate on the children. And we should aim to make our parents glad by our pursuit of wisdom. The Bible is very clear in both the Old and the New Testament that children are to obey and honor their parents. Ephesians 6, 1-3 talks about that in the New Testament. It's about, our, it's about the actions of the child and the attitudes. That's what we're aiming for as parents. So if you're still under the authority of your parents, in other words, you're living at home, you're under their provision, right? They're the reason you eat, they're the reason you have a place to live, all those sort of things. Um, you're under their authority, right? You're a minor or whatever. You say, well, I'm, I'm 16, I don't think they should get a say. They don't just get a say, they get the say, right? They get the say. 
there will come a day where that's not the case anymore. But God says that's what's good for you. That's what's best for you right now. And honoring, though, is more about the attitude than the actions. It's, it's not just, in other words, I don't just want Canon and Eden to, to do what I say. I want them to do it with a smile, right? <laughs> I want them to have the right attitude. An attitude of honor. Now, as adults, we're no longer commanded to obey. Form your own household. You're no longer commanded to obey your parents. But the, but the position of honor should always be there. Parents are always to be valued for the mere fact that they are our parents. There is amount of respect owed merely for their position, according to the Bible. You can be grateful for the good things, the provision, different things like that, even if there are things that maybe bring you grief that you're not happy about. At the very least, we can honor them by praying for them, even if there are things that grieve our hearts. And if you've got godly parents, like I do, like many of you do, it should be a great joy to honor them. But we're to be thoughtful of the tone we take with our parents. You're going to disagree. But that, that should always permeate our discussion. Even later in life, as you grow up, the tone should be one of honor, tone of respect. One way we can honor our parents is by protecting them, looking out for them, and for their good as they age. Proverbs 28, 24 it says, whoever robs his father or his mother and says that is no transgression is a companion to a man who destroys. In other words, take advantage of your parents when they get older. The Bible says you're a companion of one who destroys. Proverbs 19, 26, he who does violence to his father and chases, his, chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. You know, in the New Testament, the, the problem was you had the, the Pharisees who would come along and they would tell people, they would say, listen, you can dedicate your money to the treasury of the temple. And then, if your parents, in their old age, maybe they need some help, right? You can say, I would help you, but I can't. I've dedicated it all to God. So when I die or whatever, he's getting everything. The Lord's getting it all. I'm giving it all to the temple treasure. So that's why they call it Corbin. Right? He said, that was the Pharisees and some of the scribes and some of the priests. That was kind of their sneaky little way of raising money for the temple treasury, but in doing so, leading people to violate a Ten Commandment about honoring the parents. In our day and age, it would be, Mom, I would love to help you with that utility bill, but I'm a tither, right? To which my response would be, what happened to the other 90%, right? And the idea is this, the wise home is a home where, yes, marriage is stewarded, stewarded well, children are guided properly, and parents are respected. And obeyed when they should be obeyed. And then honored throughout life. And where, number four, peace is pursued. Pursue peace. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. The troublemaker in the family. Right? If you want to offend God, go about sowing discord in your family. We are to pursue peace with all of our family members. As the New Testament says, pursue peace with all people as much as it depends on you. You can't do everything, but you can do what you can do. Proverbs shows us peace in the home and the family is a thing to be valued and pursued. Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. In verse, chapter 15, verse 17 says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. In other words, it's better to have a crummy dinner 
with peace and quiet than a big meal with fighting. It's better for your home to be vegetarian and have, and, and have love than to eat meat and not have it and have discord. That's saying something. <laughs> the point's simple. What's going on in the hearts sitting around the table is more important than what's on the table. Few things bring more misery to the home when we don't walk in peace together. As Proverbs 21.9 says, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Or for that matter, husband. Spouses can make life miserable on one another. The peaceful home starts with us. We can't teach our children to not fight and bicker and all that kind of stuff if we're doing it. We teach our children how to handle a bad mood. You teach your children, and I teach my children how to handle disappointment and emotions and not getting what we want and anger. So we shouldn't be hypocrites and say to our kids, do this while we do something totally different. Are you living at peace today with your spouse and with your family? Are you pursuing it with your children, with your siblings, as much as depends on you? You can't do it all, but you can do what you can do. Now, we said at the beginning of this series that wisdom is a spiritual issue. It's about... It's about fearing God. That's the beginning of wisdom, right? The beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us twice, is about the fear of the Lord. And God has not called us to something that He has not shown us what it looks like to walk in wisely. God the Son is the bridegroom that loves His bride and laid down His life for her. He gives us a picture of how a husband should love a wife. God the Father loves and disciplines His children for their good and for His glory and shows us what Healthy discipline should look like and how it should be motivated from love and compassion, not anger or harshness. And in Jesus, we see a picture of a son obeying and honoring his father, even to the point of laying down his life on the cross to redeem his prodigal brothers and sisters. And in the gospel, we see a peace being made through the cross of Christ and God's very enemies becoming his children. The truth is, you and I, we are all sinful and foolish and broken we're not perfect spouses. We don't steward our marriages perfectly. We are not perfect parents. We get frustrated at our children's behavior and forget about their heart. Every single one of us has failed to properly honor our parents at some point in our lives. And I'd be willing to bet we've all brought strife into our home at one time or another, and it was our own doing. And the good news of the gospel is that our good and holy heavenly Father who loves with a love we can't fully comprehend has sent his sinless, obedient Son to lay down his life for us in our place, paying our debt and rising again. And that only through Jesus can we be forgiven of all of our failures. As a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a daughter, as a son. All of our failures in life and in family and only in Jesus can we be set free to pursue God's design for family. So today, if you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, that's number one. I hope you'll do that today. And if you're a believer today, the question is, are we, are we doing family God's way or the world's ways? What's shaping and molding how we're doing what we're doing? How's your marriage today? Are you stewarding it or surviving it? How are your kids? Are you being the loving God they need? Are you in a posture of honor towards your parents? Do you long for and pursue peace in your home? These are just questions to ask, to prod and pray about. To ask God to reveal us to us our failures and our struggles and to give us strength to pursue wisdom in all areas of family. Let's pray.